0: Hi, this is Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to PodShip Earth. This week, Cousin David and I went to a dog and pony show put on by the Pruitt Environmental Protection Agency to take comments on his goal of eliminating the Clean Power Plan, that would have reduced greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired power plants. Later in the show, we'll talk to Lord Martin Rees, the astronomer royale, about infinity and beyond. So David, this is your first political rally, right? That's correct. That's amazing. What Was there anything that kind of struck you?
1: I mean, the whole thing was pretty interesting. I like seeing that everybody was so organized and they had things to say that they wanted to share. And there were kids lined up from school that must have like bust them in and they all were there. And then there was... was quite a production. Yeah. And then there was a bunch of professional politicians or lobbyists that were also there. It was just an interesting mixture of folks.
0: Was there anything that confused you or bewildered you?
1: I mean, I just didn't understand the whole thing about the record and why people like had to get on the record. Like, where is, where does the record go?
0: Well, actually, this was not really democracy in action. It was more like a show trial. I think Pruitt and Trump have already made their mind up that they don't want the clean power plan, but our voices still are important by going and, and articulating their points and saying they're against what Pruitt's trying to do. It goes into the federal record, and eventually there'll probably be millions of more signatures and notes in the record that say Pruitt's plan sucks. And so that's basically what this was all about. Interesting. Yeah. So, Thank you. Yeah. So let's take a listen to what some of the public had to say. And I oppose
2: repeal of cleaner regulations. Good morning, my name is Karina barnett laura and I live here in San Francisco speaking today in my capacity as a human in support of the Clean Power
0: Plan. We then heard from California's top air regulator. Good morning, my name is Mary Nichols. I'm the chair of the California Air Resources Board, a position to which I have been appointed three times by Governor Jerry Brown and once by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. The mission of the United States Environmental Protection Agency is to protect human health and the environment. The proposal to repeal the Clean Power Plan does neither. And just to add a touch of ritziness, Tom Steyer, the billionaire eco-philanthropist and lead mover and shaker behind the efforts to impeach Trump, showed up for a cameo. Good
1: morning. My name's Tom Steyer. And it's hard to recall now, but it is important to remember that the Environmental Protection Agency was set up to protect our environment. And central to its mission today is promoting clean power and clean air.
0: After giving testimony, Tom Steyer went and spoke on the steps of San Francisco City Hall. Standing next to him was a lady dressed up in a polar bear outfit, holding a sign saying, Pruitt, keep your hands off the
1: clean power plan. But she did overheat and she fell down on the steps right next to Tom. It was terrifying. I mean, she just like keeled over. Yeah, it was it was
0: sad. And the fact that the polar bear overheated and fainted was bad. He didn't seem to react at all, which is also a little odd.
1: Yeah, they just kept on going.
0: Yeah. Um, At that moment, I got an email from a friend saying that a Kentucky coal advocate was in town for the same EPA hearings and would like to talk with Podship Earth. I was intrigued. Tyler White was named as president of Kentucky Coals Association in 2016. He served in the US Marine Corps and was selected to help develop a psychological operations capability for the Marines. Tyler's nearing completion of his master's degree from the Harvard Extension School. So Tyler, you came to San Francisco today for this EPA
2: hearing. Absolutely. Where are you from? Tell us about yourself. From Lexington, Kentucky. I'm the president of the Kentucky Coal Association. So we represent the coal producers uh, in Kentucky, as well as about 120 different companies that are involved with the coal industry. And how big an industry is coal in Kentucky? It fluctuates, and of course, it's okay. gone down a lot over the past uh, few years. As we've seen, our industry, especially from a producer standpoint, just completely devastated. Mm. I think a lot of people look at this industry in kind of an archaic way where they envision, you know, a guy down in a coal mine with a shovel and a pickaxe. And, uh, you know, that was kind of how it was during the Industrial Revolution. Now, when you go down underground, there's a guy with a remote control box and he is driving a piece of heavy machinery from a remote control uh, called a continuous miner. We definitely don't need the same amount of people that we once had. Uh, but we still need people willing to, to go do that job that has been entrenched uh, in communities, especially in Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, for generations, 100, 100 plus years. One of the hardest working workforces uh, that I've seen uh, in America. Why are you here today? Why are you in San Francisco and Taiwan? So one thing that I really felt was important that uh, we do have different ideas in the mix. I think that's important. I think that's one of the cool things about the, the fabric of our democracy in America uh, so I thought, you know, what a great opportunity it is to come here and and just inject maybe a different thought process in terms of how we view energy and especially production of that energy. So what will you be telling the panel at EPA folks today? My biggest thing is that, uh, number one, I don't think that the EPA should be in the business of picking power sources. And that's essentially what the Clean Power Plan did. Um, the second is that I believe that energy provides opportunity and especially low cost energy. See in Kentucky uh, where we have fallen on hard economic times and we are one of the poorest states in the nation, one of the things that gives people opportunity is jobs. Well, you know how we create jobs in Kentucky? is low affordable energy prices that allow manufacturing sectors to come in and create opportunity through jobs. But it starts with that low energy price. And in Kentucky, eighty-three percent of our energy is produced by coal, so we look at that resource as as something that shouldn't be faded out, especially before its time. So, when you go to these communities that have been devastated and talk to them about their future,
0: how do you? Get, what is the hope here?
2: Yeah, yeah, So this is a really good this is a really good question, and I'm I, I like it because I like being future. I'm a younger guy, right? So a younger guy in the coal industry. Um, so especially in Appalachia, um, are these coal are, are, are thousands of jobs going to come back to the coal industry in Appalachia? No, they're not. Do we need to put our miners back to work? Absolutely. We need to, because you have this displaced workforce that I said is one of the hardest working workforces in America. So how do we do that? I'm a big believer, especially when we talk about Appalachia diversifying our economy, uh, because if you put everything into one thing, you see what happens if it goes away. It becomes uh, an extremely depressed state, and that's something that we don't we don't want to see again. It feels like just from a national
0: environmental perspective. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm an environmentalist, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but it really feels like these are communities that have been left behind. There's no transition plan to get them renewable energy, and they just feel forgotten. Like. Where the fuck are the people who are meant to be looking after us? How can we turn that around
2: to be a positive force? I think a lot of people felt left behind. I think a lot of people saw a lot of government policies come in, especially in these rural communities, and uh, and put a lot of people out of work. Natural gas was a contributor. It's a market force. But there are also a lot of non-market forces out there at play. Forces like policies like the Clean Power Plan. That's not through Congress, not through their elected representatives, but through the administrative state. It wasn't like the government came in and said, yeah, but here's these other opportunities, right? And I think you saw a lot of that uh, manifest in in the 2016 election, especially when you look at those different uh, pockets, yeah, because if people don't have jobs,
0: they're going to be frustrated. If they're going to be frustrated, they're going to take that out at the ballot box.
2: Not only the ballot box, but, you know, you look at the opioid a- academic and look at the belt that it's hitting in, in our mm-hmm. rural communities, mm-hmm. you know, and you talk about loss of jobs and then opioids, and it's just like this cocktail that you don't like, and it's and it's very it's very sad. And yeah, I do. There needs to be more of a dialogue. See, it, it, it's kind of frustrating, especially kind of as a young person that's you know in the fossil fuels industry. Is man, I get a lot of hate mail, Mm. right? And everything's so polarized, Mm. right? What happened to the time where you know you thought this way, I think this way, and we somehow come together where where we can? called punch And and then work and like work on it, right? We're human beings, and I think we've kind of lost that in this fabric of everything that's going on. Uh, So one thing I really, you know, I I really. Take pride in, in this position is coming out here to places that are different, that aren't the same, talking with people that are don't have the same ideas as me. I've always mm-hmm. said this, you know, we're all human beings and we're all in the struggle of life together, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's time that everybody starts working a little bit better together. When I you talk to coal miners, they're like, people don't think we care about the, the quality of water that like is in our own communities or or the air that our children breathe. No, we do care about it. I think we're in a really dangerous time because we don't look at the human side
0: of the person on the other side of the table. We just say, oh, they have different views than us. I'm going to ignore them. Tell us a little bit about the people that you represent, their daily lives,
2: and what their aspirations and dreams are. These guys take great pride in their job, not just because they're providing for their families. I did my time in the Marine Corps, and I'm telling you that I I don't know how these guys do it. But... These guys, you know, when they're sitting around the table and they're talking about energy, uh, there's a great pride that that when you do turn on your light switch or you plug in your iPhone or your Tesla, uh, that that they're providing that energy source for millions of Americans and billions of people around the world. Do you feel like you have a friend in the White House? Does it feel like a big difference? It's absolutely a big difference. It's a it's a big difference, especially especially with. The cabinet, we actually feel like like we're being listened to. We're we're not offering, you know, do this, do this, get them, get them here. And I think that we're very thought out when we communicate that to Administrator Pruitt and to the administration. And I think that that's uh, that's very welcoming to our industry to have that type of communication. And what did it feel like before? Like from what I have uh, from what I've seen, is that communication didn't exist. Mm. In fact, with hearings about or hearings with listening sessions about things like the Clean Power Plan, uh, they, they didn't come to coal country to see what people thought about that implementation. What does the future of coal
0: look like in the United States and in Kentucky? And it, it just projected out, kind of, what's, what's the next 10 years look like, Tyler?
2: It's here to stay for a long time, a lot longer than what you would read about in uh, and different academic or order- so coal is not dead coal is not dead coal is okay. th- people have to remember this 30 percent. you don't don't phase out 30 percent of the nation's energy overnight mm. and you would be ill-advised to do so we've been speaking to tyler thank you so much thanks
0: i really appreciated tyler's willingness to engage in this discussion his humanity and receptivity to new ideas on ways of helping Kentucky's transition to a healthy economy was not at all what I expected. We both come from opposite sides of the debate around the future of coal. But in talking to Tyler, I felt a renewed optimism about the ability of environmentalists and coal miners getting on the same page. It was also amazing to me how Tyler's rhetoric as the head of the Kentucky Miners Association was so much more measured and thoughtful and Scott Pruitts of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency.
1: Jared, I'm glad that I got to sit in on your interview with Tyler. At the end, Tyler said the one thing that shocked him the most was the number of homeless people outside the EPA hearing in San Francisco.
0: Talking of rough neighborhoods, when I was studying law at UC Berkeley, Alex and I lived in the heart of East Oakland on 93rd and East 14th Street, right where the Black Panthers were founded by Huey Newton, and Bobby Seale in 1966. One of the many enduring legacy of the Black Panther movement, including the blockbuster movie currently in theaters, which I can't wait to see, is the way images and design were used to portray the struggle. Here is Emery Douglas, the creative genius behind the Black Panther political movement, talking about the importance of design.
1: And you have to be able to communicate with people. It has to be able
0: to uh, be a reflection of their desires and their interests and concerns. Uh, if you want to be relevant in, in relationship to change. You know, it has to be a language that communicates with people, that people, when they hear it or see it, they can get a sense of what's going on.
3: It can reinforce maybe their feelings, or their thinking about ideals.
0: From how we design products so that they don't create waste that ends up in our oceans, to how we design homes that produce more energy than they use, to how we design cities so that you don't need a car to get around, design is critical. So, as you can imagine, designing the look and feel of PodShip Earth was important to me. I asked Cousin David,
1: and he said, Have you heard about DesignCrowd?
0: No, I haven't. What is it?
1: It's a website that helps you crowdsource custom logos and web design from designers around the world. Cool.
0: I liked the look and feel of the website, designcrowd.com slash podship. It was very intuitive, and after I entered all the parameters about what I wanted the Podship Earth logo to look like, hand-drawn, friendly, not corporate, I then went to bed. By the time I woke up in the morning, there were 30 designs in my inbox. Eventually, I had 121 designs from 37 different designers. One designer seemed to get what I wanted more than most. It was Kent from Art Tank.
2: Hey, this Kent, also known as Art Tank from Design Crowd. Jared, I really had fun working on Podship Earth because it's different, and just like the podcast itself, I got to think outside the box. I love designing as it allows me to meet other people and collaborate on ideas that exercise our creativity. Some projects also require traditional illustration, which I love doing since I was a kid. Please go to designcrowd.com/podship if you want me or other designers. To work on your project. This is Kent signing off from Canada.
0: Thanks, Kent. If you want someone to help turn your vision into reality, or even if you don't have a clear idea of what direction you want to take with your design, designcrowd.com slash podship can help. So, if people want to get a good design and help podship Earth, what do they do? As you know, David, I love bargains. So, I have a $100 offer for podship listeners. Go to designcrowd.com slash podship and save up to $100 when you start your next project. That's designcrowd.com slash Or simply enter the discount code podship when posting a project on DesignCrowd. I'm grateful I found the site. It saved me time and money, and it was a rewarding creative experience. Remember, never underestimate the power of design. Lord Martin Rees has been the Astronomer Royal since 1995. He was the master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and held the presidency of the Royal Society. Lord Rees is the author of more than 500 research papers, and he's part of the $100 million effort called Breakthrough Initiative, which has reinvigorated the search for extraterrestrial life. Lord Rees is widely published and plays a critical role in captivating an ever larger audience interested in the universe and our place in it. Talking to one of the smartest people on the planet, I was nervous that I had transposed cosmetology for cosmology and astrology for astronomy, but somehow I managed to keep them straight. I recorded this interview with Martin Rees in his home in Cambridge, England. Welcome, Martin. It's great to be talking with you, Jared. Thank you. My daughter Anya is 16 and she takes, right now is taking an astronomy class Mm -hmm. and she went to Yosemite and it wasn't a very large um, mirrored telescope but she was able to see the rings around Saturn Mm -hmm. and just this spark in her eye, literally she just got back last weekend and was like, Dad, this is the most amazing thing ever. Just to realize that there is this incredible universe out there and we're such a small speck within it.
3: Well, that's right. One of the most exciting discoveries in the last year or so was a very faint star which has seven planets orbiting around it. It's a miniature solar system where the year on each of those planets would be only two days for the innermost ones, two weeks for the outermost of the seven planets. And that was discovered using a 22-inch diameter telescope.
0: So back in the when when you started in the 60s and 70s, there was... Uh, astronomers and then there was science fiction and now they seem to nearly have blended together in the public consciousness.
3: We know space technology has advanced hugely Um, but of course science fiction has been a stimulus and I would tell my students it's better to read first-rate science fiction than second-rate science. It's far more (laughs) stimulating and no more likely to be wrong.
0: My cousin David was just so excited that I was coming to talk to you. I mean, he talks about very little else other than life (laughs) on other planets. Um, The search for intelligent life. Habitable does not mean inhabited. But for most of us, that
3: is the number one question. Well, the one thing we have learned is that there are in our Milky Way galaxy probably a billion planets which are rather like the young Earth in the sense that they're about the size of the Earth, and they're orbiting their parent star at a distance such that water can exist. Water doesn't boil away as it would if they were too close, nor does it stay frozen as if further away. So they're in the so-called habitable zone, and we know that there are probably billions of such planets in our galaxy. But indeed, whether there is life on those, we still don't know. And that's because we don't actually know how life got started here on Earth. Of course, we know that Darwinian selection has led from the simplest protozoa, which existed three or three and a half billion years ago, into the marvelous biosphere we have today and of which we are a part. We understand the process that led to that uh, evolution via natural selection. But the initial transition, the transition from complicated chemicals to the first metabolizing, replicating entity to be called alive. That is still not understood. And fortunately, people are now working on it. But of course, the other thing we can now do is look for evidence for life elsewhere. And that'll really clinch the case if we actually find it. And in our own solar system, of course, for centuries, people have speculated about evidence for for life. If you ask what's the most likely place where there could be life in our solar system, it's probably under the ice of Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn. Um, We don't know, but there could be something swimming under that ice, and in 10 or 20 years we'll know. Now, if we were to find evidence for life on Enceladus or Europa, that would be very important, but because that would immediately tell us that life was not a rare accident, because if life had originated twice, within a single planetary system, then it must have originated in a billion other places. So long as we only know about one origin of life, we can't rule out the possibility that it's so rare and only happened here. But if it's happened twice within one planetary system, then it must be existent everywhere in billions of places. So that's hopeful. But no one expects any really advanced life anywhere else in our solar system apart from the Earth. Um, but uh, when we widen our horizons to the planets orbiting other stars, mm. then, of course, the whole uh, um, possibility opens up hugely. Uh, and I think at the moment, we can't observe these other planets around other stars in enough detail to say much about them. But in 10 years, we'll be able to do better. We will have a next generation of huge telescopes on the ground. Where will they be, Martin? Well, the biggest is going to be in Chile. It's called the ELT, which stands for Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> and it's got it's going to have a mirror 39 meters in diameter. Incredible. Which is huge, of course. Not one sheet of glass, but a mosaic of about 800 pieces of glass. Martin, what will these new larger telescopes allow us to see? This will have the ability to actually um, image a planet orbiting another star. But the way I like to put it is, suppose that some alien astronomers were looking at our solar system. Then they'd see the sun as an ordinary star. They'd see the earth, as in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot, very close in the sky to its star, our sun, and a billion times fainter. But if the aliens watched this pale blue dot carefully, they could learn a bit about it. They could learn that the shade of blue was slightly different, sometimes compared to others, depending on where the Pacific Ocean was facing them or the landmass of Asia. So they could learn that there were constants and oceans. They could learn the length of the day. They could learn something of the climate and the seasons. And by analyzing the light, they could learn if there was oxygen or ozone in the atmosphere. Now, those are just the kinds of inferences that in a decade or two, we'll be able to draw about some of these Earth-like planets around other stars. And this will be, of course, uh, a huge breakthrough. And this will address the question of whether any of them have biospheres, life or vegetation. Now, of course, the question of whether they have the kind of aliens with intelligence or technology, that's a separate one. That's a higher risk one. But I think we will uh, um, know whether life is widespread within 10 or 20 years. In in the last... 30 years, been able to
0: understand the molecular and cellular granularity of life at the same time that we've been able to understand the vastness of space.
3: Well, th- that's right. And there's an even more intimate collection because uh, um, uh, when the earth formed, um, it uh, already had complex geology and chemistry. Uh, it contained um, lots of carbon, oxygen, phosphorus and iron and things, all the chemical elements which were crucial for the emergence of life and they were present when the solar system formed and we would like to know where they came from. Stars are nuclear fusion reactors. They derive the energy to keep them shining by fusing hydrogen to helium, then helium into carbon, up the periodic table as far as iron. There's a recycling process going on where stars are dying all the time, they're forming all the time all the carbon, oxygen, etc., was forged in ancient stars, which lived and died probably at least 5 billion years ago before the solar system formed. And the solar So system we've
0: been recycled, Martin. So, so we're
3: recycled materials, so uh, like we are literally the ashes from long-dead stars. If you're less romantic, we're the nuclear waste from the fuel that made stars shine. I like that. So we are intimately linked to the, the cosmos. We are midway between atoms and stars in scale, um, geometric mean of the mass of a proton and the mass of the sun is about 50 kilograms, which is not far from the mass of the average human being. So it would take about as many human bodies to make up the sun as are atoms in each of us. So we are midway uh, between the very small and the very large.
0: As you say, Our Big Bang may not have been the only one. Separate universes may have cooled down differently, ending up governed by different levels and defined by different numbers. This opens up a new vision of our universe, which would be just one atom selected from an
3: infinite multiverse. Yes, yes. I should say this is still a speculation, but in fact uh, many theorists um, do uh, suspect that that is the case and that uh, if we did get evidence that we are in this kind of multiverse, it would be a sort of fourth Copernican revolution. So this means that physical reality is vastly more complex and intricate than uh, what we see. What we are now becoming aware of is that the observable universe may be only a tiny part of physical reality.
0: One of the areas that the laws of Newtonian and, and Einstein's physics may not apply are black holes, right? Um, where... You describe them as, <laughs> excuse me, as a remarkable theoretical construct, but more than that, evidence that they actually exist is now compelling. Mm-hmm. What What are black holes, and, and, and how do they bend time and space?
3: Yes. Um, and light? Well, they are objects where gravity is so strong that not even light can escape from them. And uh, from the 1960s onwards, theorists, including myself, speculated that they would exist. So... Black holes, as such, are quite well understood. And what we observe are um, objects where um, gas is swirling down into a this um, gravitational pit, as it were, getting very hot, and we can uh, actually understand this. But <clears throat> deep inside a black hole, which we can't observe, there is probably a mystery, because uh, in, inside the black hole um, then... There's a so-called singularity where things go infinite, etc., And that's a signal that some new physics must come in. And this is uh, one instance where we know that the physics of the 20th century is incomplete. We've got a very good physics in the micro world, which is quantum theory. We have a very good theory of gravity, Einstein's theory. But those two separate theories aren't linked together. Einstein's theory doesn't have a quantum dimension to it and quantum theory doesn't include gravity. But if we really want to understand what happens deep inside a black hole and more importantly, if we want to understand what happened right at the beginning of the Big Bang, then we need this theory because if we extrapolate back to the very early stages of the Big Bang, uh, we infer a universe of microscopic size uh, unifying the very large and the very small is a challenge for 21st century physics. I like to say that even the smallest insect is far more complicated than a star because an insect has layer upon layer of structure, whereas a star is basically one big amorphous ball of hot gas.
0: And as you quote E.O. Wilson um, and your own observations mm. on the sixth great extinction, we're, we're losing so much. Um, every day in terms of things that we could be learning about, um, whether it's an insect or even more microscopic species that we'll never know
3: existed. What is happening now, which has never happened before in the 45 million centuries of the Earth's history, is that one species, maybe ours, can determine the future of the planet. And that's because um, within the last century, uh, our numbers have grown, we are more empowered by technology, and we are transforming the the planet. In our final hour,
0: you you gave us a fifty fifty chance of surviving the century.
3: It's unlikely we'll wipe ourselves out completely, but I think it's likely we will have a very bumpy ride through this century. And I would certainly say that there's a fifty percent chance of having a very severe setback to our civilization, caused um. Uh, by some environmental crisis uh, or possibly uh, some uh, runaway cyber crisis or pandemic or something like that. Do you ever think
0: that we're in a computer simulation? <laughs> that we're not, that this this is just all too perfect, a, you know, infinitesimally dense atom that expands 14 billion years ago into an yes. expanding universe and that you have to have these, you know, very precise six variables yes. um in very precise numbers to create life on earth, maybe are we just, is that a
3: possibility we'd naturally find ourselves in one where the tuning was adequate so that's one thing, but uh, as regards whether we're in a simulation i mean this is a an idea which some of us have speculated about uh it's not absolutely crazy, but i wouldn't bet much on it i mean the the uh the, the idea would would then be that there has to be some even more complex entities uh, which were underlying the simulation. Uh, so it's not absurd to uh, speculate that uh, what we regard as reality is not in practice the deepest level of reality. It's not a crazy concept, but I think it's rather unlikely.
0: 20 years from now, when we have those telescopes in Chile, we'll also mm. have video games that People will be putting virtual reality heads. Well, that's absolutely. Yeah. That
3: depends on the extent to which Moore's law can be uh, extended, which probably involves going into sort of three-dimensional chips, etc. Mm. Um because but of course, the, the other the other point which is relevant is that uh, cost of gene sequencing has fallen even more steeply than Moore's law, because the human genome first draft was uh, beginning of this century, cost three billion dollars, uh, whereas now for less than a thousand dollars you can get a uh, sequencing of the human genome. It'll have huge benefits for personalized medicine, um, but also it will allow these um, uh, designer uh, creatures in a way that was not possible in the past.
0: We've been talking to Martin Rees, the Royal Astronomer. As uh, Thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating.
3: Very good to have the chance to chat with you, Jared.
0: Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank Martin for expanding my mind to the point where I feel less significant and yet more unique at the same time. Inspired by Martin Rees, Brenna, who also hiked on the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, and I were talking this week about sleeping under the stars. Yes, I slept in a tent the first five nights and then did not sleep in a tent until the last three days when it rained. Had it spectacular weather and just slept on a ground cloth every single night. And I've never, there was never a time where I was taking it for granted. I mean, like every night it's amazing to look up at the stars, right? It's incredible. I mean, it just, I mean, just visually it's spectacular. I mean, there's so much movement and you feel so connected to it. I mean, there's this incredible connection between you lying looking up or me lying looking up at the stars and those stars that I'd never felt. Yeah. You get to know them. There was a certain constellation that we'd look for every night and be like,
2: we're in the right place. And just that was kind of, that's the takeaway, is that every night you're in exactly the right place and you're very connected to the sun setting and the rhythm
0: of the day. But yeah, laying down on the ground and looking up at the stars every
3: night before bed was the best.
0: Thanks, Brenna. One way to connect with the stars is to visit and even join your local astronomy club. They're a great resource and they can get you started On your own amazing journey. The best I found is go-astronomy.com. Thanks to Tyler White for giving us a sense of the struggles faced by Kentucky coal miners and how that is shaping the current climate change debate. I want to thank each of you that has either gone to an EPA hearing or let them know the importance of keeping the Clean Power Plan by providing comments on the EPA website. If you haven't done it yet, the deadline is April 26th. Next week, we'll talk to Dr. Musa Makhranga from Cape Town, South Africa about how his city is about to run out of water and to Lisa Gauthier about how the hair from Michael Phelps and thousands of salons helped clean up oil from the BP Deepwater Horizon spill. Thank you so much for being part of the PodShip Earth journey. From the entire PodShip Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, Give me a credit yeah you, you get a credit of course and me Jerry Blumenfeld have a fabulous week.